Uh, hope everyone's doing well this morning. You guys doing well? It's good to see you. Okay, I want to start with a question. How many of you recognize the name Caitlin McNeil? Anyone? Okay, you're like me. It's a name that probably doesn't ring a bell, uh, seems somewhat unfamiliar, and yet, remarkably, more than three years ago, just a little over three years ago, Caitlin McNeil impacted truly millions of people all around the world. And so how did she have such a global impact and yet remain somewhat unknown? Well, let, let me tell you the story behind it. Uh, Caitlin is a musician, a vocalist, and a guitarist. In uh, around February 2015, she was performing at a wedding in Scotland. And uh, typical things occurred at this wedding that you see at most weddings, and primarily a bunch of photos were taken, and then during and after the event, additional photos were shared. And so the people that were there uh, were looking through these photos and commenting on them, and there was one particular photo that kind of ignited this argument amongst the people that were at this wedding. And, and so it was such a, a fascinating argument that, that Caitlin decided to appeal to the rest of her peers, the rest of the people on social media, and so she found a photo that was somewhat similar to the one that ignited all this controversy, and she shared it. And within 30 minutes, uh, there were more than 500 additional likes and shares. And it began to spread and migrate throughout the land of social media. Twitter, Facebook, BuzzFeed in particular got a hold of it and, and shared this similar poll, this picture with this simple question to try to help settle this argument. And within a couple of days, more than 28 million people had looked at this photo and commented on it. And, and not only that, it shattered the record for BuzzFeed's internet traffic. Celebrities were chiming in. At one point, at its peak, more than 670,000 people were simultaneously viewing this photo. And so what was it that created such a stir? There's a picture of a dress. You remember this? Right? And it was, the question was simple. Blue and black or white and gold? And it was that question that ignited a debate. So I'm just curious. We tested this this morning in our pre-service meeting. How many people see blue and black? How many people see white and gold? Anyone? All right, several of you, all right? We can see the majority. And so what made the debate so remarkable is that you could all look in on something similar and walk away with a different conclusion. And we were reminded of the uniqueness of this type of debate even just recently this year in May when this time it wasn't a picture that people were arguing over, it was an audio clip. And this time the clip was asking you, what name do you hear? Do you hear the name Yanny or do you hear the name Laurel? The audio clip sounded like this. Laurel. 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 Right? Okay, that's good. How many of you hear the Laurel. word Yanny? How many of you hear the word Laurel? Right? It's split. Okay, so just in case you're wondering, blue and black is right and Laurel is right because that's what I hear and that's what I see. So, so the reality that made this so compelling was that Everybody could have the same variable, right, the same situation, and walk away with a totally different conclusion. And, and that's part of what, what gave it its intrigue and what gave it its kind of mystery. And, and I share it with you as a reminder this morning for a couple of different reasons. The first is, it's a good reminder of just how quickly and how easily we can find ourselves with an opposing view from another. Right now, when you're talking about the color of a dress or the sound of an audio clip, that, that's a pretty innocent debate. That's a pretty innocent argument. But when we begin to gravitate to more serious topics of consideration, whether that's related to religion or race or ethnicity or wealth or, or politics, whatever it is, we can all look at the same variable and walk away with two drastically different interpretations. And when that happens in these more serious frames in life, it creates hostility. It creates opposition and can happen so easily. 
Same variable, same information, yet division. And the other reason I share it with you is because it's a reminder that a lot of times we hear voices trying to influence which side to choose, right? We, we have this debate, this rhetoric, and in that particular situation, you could hear people say, well, it's blue and black. No, I say it's white and gold. No, it's Yanny. No, it's Laurel. And there's constantly these voices in our midst that are trying to convince us to adhere to their side or their position. And so what I want us to consider this morning is that in light of the context and the, the innate tendencies that we have to find ourselves with opposing views of others, what voice do you listen to? What voice most influences your life? And the hope is that as we return once again to the teachings of the scriptures, we have an opportunity to be reminded of the importance of submitting to and leading ourselves to or following the voice of the king. That's our desire and that's our hope this morning. And so as often is the case, just as out of habit and out of a reverence to his word, let's just pray for that clarity this morning as we go to God's scripture. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we long to hear your voice today. We, we long to hear the voice of a king, that you can teach us how to live and what it means to follow you. So let your word now be, be living and active in our hearts, our souls, and our minds as we seek to glorify and honor you with all that we say and do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, today is the day that we conclude our series on identity. Uh, we've talked about this over the last two months, essentially, where we, we have this premise that our fixed and firm beliefs, our convictions are going to shape who we are. And so we've, we've kind of introduced this topic by looking at this overarching theme of the kingdom of God, right? Jesus comes and he announces the kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is here. And we define the kingdom as the rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ in our lives. And so the, the premise has been as we walk through these convictions, as we walk through these beliefs, what are these convictions that we should cling tightly to and hold tightly to that reveal God's rule and reign in our lives? How does it shape who we are as individuals? And so we've looked at gospel-centered. We've looked at being guided by the scriptures and so on and so forth. And today, we continue that discussion by looking at what does it mean to be a loving community. Now, as we've said each and every week, this is not necessarily designed to have us think through this on a corporate level. Uh, this is more as an individual. So what does it mean for me to love others? H how do I contribute to and help foster a loving community? That's the discussion we want to look at today. And, and we do so with this question of what voice influences us. And, and one of the things that I want to offer as a reminder as we begin this final discussion today is to acknowledge that the scriptures continually teach that we are going to be confronted with the voices of the world, the voices of the culture that are often going to lead us astray. And we have to give great consideration to the things that we listen to. Right? Consider Romans 12 again. What does Romans 12 say? Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? We, we are not to seek conformity. We, we don't listen to the voices that lead us towards conformity. We seek transformation. And we have to acknowledge that each of us carries a tendency and a propensity to just gravitate to the voices that we want to hear to be surrounded by people that are gonna tell us what we think we need to hear, rather than submitting to the authority oftentimes of the scriptures, right? Second Timothy says it like this, there will be those who will no longer put up with sound doctrine, but will gather teachers around them who will tell them what their itchy ears want to hear. That's the resistance or the things that we have to resist within each of us, right? We have to seek 
to evaluate what voice am I listening to and how am I pursuing the voice of the king, right? The, the culture around us is going to tell us all the time, here's what success looks like. Here's what relationships should look like. Here's what money and wealth should be managed. Here, here are all these different voices that we're going to have to listen to, and we have to drown those out in order to hear the voice of the Savior. And that's what we're going to look at today. And it comes at an appropriate time as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, because there's this refrain in this particular part of the passage that Jesus keeps coming back to. Right? It's this refrain in chapter 5 where he says, You have heard it said, but I tell you. And constantly, he is challenging what they've heard, the voices of the day, and elevating his voice to be the authority that it should resonate with in their lives. And so we're going to follow through that stretch. Now, in chapter 5, Jesus is working through specific topics, right? He's, he's establishing what they've heard, but then he's saying, I'm calling you to a higher standard. You've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you, don't even be angry with your brother. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, don't even look at a woman lustfully. Right? He, he continues to hit <clears throat> excuse me, on these issues, but then elevating the standard. He talks about murder. He talks about divorce. He talks about adultery and oaths and revenge. And as he concludes this theme of you've heard it said, but I tell you, he hits on a very important topic of love. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to use this passage to help us understand how love should be evident in our lives as we seek to be uh, those that contribute to a loving community and have that as a part of our identity. So in chapter 5, verse 43, let's hear how Jesus teaches us. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may, ch may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on evil and the good, and then sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, this is a, a very difficult teaching, but it's one that is incredibly important in order for us to understand how love shapes our identity. And, and here's kind of the progression that I want us to work through. I, I want us to first look at, at what Jesus is asking us to do. And after we've kind of evaluated the what, we're going to see how he kind of moves through this progression to also address why we should do it and how we should do it. Okay, so the what, the why, and the how. That's kind of the direction I want us to go. And, and so he introduces the subject with a very simple reminder. We have been told to love our neighbor. And he's referencing in a Levitical law, right, an Old Testament law that you could find, I think, in, in what is it, Leviticus 19, I believe. Love your neighbor. Now, what's interesting is that if you go to the Old Testament, you're not going to see that additional part that says hate your enemy. Okay, that, that's not in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus references it, which probably gives us some understanding that what has developed up to this point in time is that there has been this withdrawal, this, this kind of uh, seclusion for the people of God that has now led them to justify only loving each other. right? And they, all, they don't really extend that love to anyone else. And so it becomes kind of an inward-focused love. And so Jesus is going to challenge that notion here in a little bit, but, but before we get to that, let's just consider the first part of it, love your neighbor, right? The, the idea of love is an important concept for us to continually evaluate in light of the scriptures. And, and one of the reasons we need to give thoughtful consideration to it is because we live in a culture and a context that constantly devalues the meaning of love. We've talked about this before. I've used this as an example before. 
we assign the word love to so many different situations, right? For us, love can be used for food and for family. So like I can love brownies and I can love my wife, and, and that's not the same thing, hopefully, correct? And, and yet, biblically, we have different terminology that helps identify the different types of love, right? You have a word that will refer more to the, the romantic and erotic expression of love. You have a word that's going to speak more to the relational type of love. This term, this, this agape term that we hear so much about, is a sacrificial love. It's a love that compels you to give of yourself. That's the sort of love that we've been called to emulate in our lives. And so one of the first things we need to ask ourselves is, is that how you're known? Is that a part of your identity? Do you demonstrate sacrificial love? When we think about it more holistically, just as a body of believers, we must admit that a lot of times we fall short on this teaching. That, that many times we are not known for what we love or how we love. We're, we're oftentimes known more for what we're against. In fact, I was revisiting an article that was written in Relevant Magazine a couple years ago that I, that I felt like articulated this really, really well. That a lot of times we buy into this, this narrative, this, this impulse to have these arguments and to convince people on certain issues and sides. And as a result, we put the wrong foot forward when it comes to sharing our witness with the world around us. Here's how the article describes it. It's like we build these soapboxes of self-righteousness and then we climb on them with our bullhorns trying to win everyone else over to our point of view. Try asking someone you know who isn't a Christian what it means to be a Christian. You might find that their answer has little or nothing to do with following Jesus, but they probably know what things Christians typically view as sinful. In building our platform on what we are against, we have often neglected to establish a foundation of what we are for. And as a result, we are not often known by our love and grace to the community outside our walls. It's a good reminder. This is how we should be known. The way in which we love others. And more often than not, we give so much time and energy focusing on things that are issue-driven or, or subject-driven that begins to reveal what we're against rather than what we're for. So we need to remember this call towards sacrificial love. Now, now Jesus is not just reminding us of of the demonstration of love, but who should be the recipient of it? And he talks about loving our neighbor. And so who is our neighbor, right? In a simple definition, it is simply just those who have close proximity to us, somebody nearby, okay? And so that was part of the problem, right? Is that people begin to withdraw and affiliate people with people that uh, thought similarly, had common interests, had, had similar ideas, and that's a tendency that we fall into as well. Right? We, we begin to curate these lives and these relationships where we're constantly just surrounded with people that support our initial point of view and our initial way of living life. And that becomes our neighbor. And in that context, love becomes pretty easy. And so throughout his teachings and throughout his time with the disciples, Jesus is constantly trying to remind people of what it actually means to be a neighbor. In fact, at one point in Luke chapter 10, there's a teacher of the law that comes to him and asks him, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The teacher of the law responds, okay, but who is my neighbor? And that's what leads us to the story of the Good Samaritan, right? You remember the story? There's a man walking down the road. He gets beaten by these, these thugs and these robbers. He's laying there on the side of the road, left for dead. A Levite walks by, a religious person walks by, does nothing. A priest walks by, does nothing. But a Samaritan 
a Samaritan, someone that nobody would have expected, that's the one that stops and heals him, gets him to a place where he can be taken care of and his wounds can be mended. And so Jesus turns to the teacher of the law and says, who of these three was the neighbor? The teacher of the law says, the one who showed mercy. Jesus says, go and do likewise. And so what Jesus is constantly doing for us is redefining our understanding of neighbor. Right? Essentially what he's teaching us is that a neighbor can be anyone. And you can be a neighbor to anyone. And so when you think about some of those teachings and you think about this, this definition of sacrificial love, here's, here's a way that we can evaluate our obedience to what Jesus is teaching. When was the last time you demonstrated sacrificial love for someone? When was the, the last time you, you went out of your way? When, when was the last time, like the Samaritan, you overcame some of your own obstacles, fears, and apprehensions to demonstrate sacrificial love to someone unexpectedly? How often are we putting that on display? That's what Jesus has called us to do. Love your neighbor. And as direct and as challenging as that command is, in keeping in, in this kind of theme with this particular part of his message, he elevates the requirement. He doesn't leave it there. And he expands, once again, who needs to be the recipient of this love. It's not just that we love our neighbor, he says, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now that's when it gets incredibly difficult. Right? Enemy is anyone that we would have hostility towards, anyone that would create a sense of resentment um, or antagonism against somebody or another individual. And, and so when Jesus begins to talk about this, and he, he references persecution, persecution would conjure up this idea of, of systematic oppression or, or harassment. Right? This is a tough teaching. Now, I would imagine that the disciples sitting there hearing Jesus say this would immediately have someone pop into their minds that would fit into that category of being an enemy. Right? You think about that particular context. Maybe they thought of, of, of Romans, right, and the oppression of living under Roman rule. Maybe they thought of tax collectors and the, the dishonesty and the way in which they exploited the people of the day. Maybe they thought of the pagans, right, the Gentiles and their idolatry and their unclean lifestyle. There, there are probably a number of different examples that filled their mind. But if, if I'm correct, I don't think many of those examples that are addressed there are probably the same ones that we think of. I don't think many of us come into this reading a passage like that, worrying about Romans and tax collectors and pagans. So how do we take a teaching like this and apply it to where we live in the context today? Who, who are our enemies? Who are those people that create that sense of hostility and resentment? Well, I want to answer that question. I want to take some time to, to do some introspection, and I want to do it on two levels. I want to first look at it just contextually, right? The culture within which we find ourselves and the hostility that seems to be brewing all around us. And, and, and how are we responding to that culture? But then I want us to take a, a more intentional look personally in our own individual lives and what we would classify as enemies. So let's start with this first one. Part of what I think many of us would agree with today when we have this conversation is that we seem to be in a time in our country, in our context, where there's an elevated tenor of hostility, right? There just seems to be an animosity that is easy to find. There's a lot of, a lot of hatred, a lot of, a lot of uh, I guess, a lack of civility that continues to plague our culture. Now, why is that? Uh, I came across an article about a month ago that was written by Jim Dennison that had a had an interesting assessment of this hostility and this division that we see in our current country and context. 
Here's what he suggested. He said, part of the reason we find this today is because throughout our history, Americans have tended to rally together because of a common enemy. Right on the other side of the Civil War, we were tested as a young nation with wars against Mexico and Spain and then ultimately the world wars. And at every turn, we were able to, to rally together and find strength in defeating an enemy that revealed our patriotism, that revealed our unity as a culture and a country. We even got into uh, the Cold War and the, the threat of the Soviet Union and the, the threat of communism. And then even in the aftermath of 9-11, we had a threat of a global terror and hostility that existed there. And in every turn, we found something to bring us together, this, this idea that we could overcome a common enemy. But throughout our history, the threat of the common enemy has waned. And we live in a context now where maybe that enemy isn't so easy to identify, and yet that desire to still overcome an enemy exists. And so now our attention is turned inward. And now our enemies are within our borders as opposed to beyond them. And so now what happens is we have this, this rhetoric and this narrative that has landed squarely in the political arena. And now we are constantly being told with these voices that convince us, number one, you have an enemy, and it's on the other side of the aisle. Number two, you can't defeat that enemy unless you vote for me, or you agree with me, or you watch this channel, whatever it is. We have to acknowledge for a moment that you and I, we live in a context that is filled with voices convincing us the enemy is nearby. And so we're, we're falling into it. It's created uh, what many are calling this, this tribalism. All right, just uh, two days ago, I came across this article in The New Yorker that I thought had a really good assessment of tribalism and the impact that it's having on our country. Here's what it says. Tribes demand loyalty, and in return, they confer the security of belonging. They're badges of identity, not of thought. In a way, they make thinking unnecessary because they do it for you and may punish you if you try to do it for yourself. To get along without a tribe makes you a fool. To give an inch to the other tribe makes you a sucker. And so our tribes are competing for power over the state, the media, public opinion, and the verbal battleground. And when politics became a perpetual tribal war, ends justify almost any means. And individuals are absolved from the constraints of normal decency. People who would never tolerate cruelty or lying or even ordinary impoliteness in their children cheer every excess of it in their leaders. That's a good word of truth, if you ask me. There's this tribalism that's emerged, that we, we stop thinking and we just adhere to loyalty, right? And we just, we just go ahead and agree with whatever the party line establishes. And because of this pursuit of power right now, and because this narrative that the other side is the enemy, we begin to tolerate a level of indecency that we would never tolerate in our children. And it's creating this division, it's creating this hostility among us. And what grieves me is that the church has fallen victim to it, and we contribute to it, right? That all of a sudden you can, you can find examples of the pulpit being used for a political agenda, or, or you can find numerous examples in your life. You can come in, and we can worship together, and we can just pretend like the political conversation isn't there, and then we walk outside these walls, and we behave in a totally different way when politics becomes an area of conversation. And we begin to, to no longer see people. We see right and left, red and blue, Republican and Democrat. And we just stick to the party line. We stick to our tribe. We stop thinking 
for ourselves. And it's destroying the witness of the church. We've become a predictable voting block because we don't see people. Right? And so, so what Jesus is saying is that, listen, in this context, you're called to a higher standard. Believe it or not, as followers of Jesus, we don't fit into political tribes ever. Our identity is shaped by the voice of the king, not the voice of CNN or Fox News. So what we need to do is we need to stop listening to these voices. We need to stop seeing just ideas and threats of power, and we need to see people. And we need to understand hearts. We need to respond to what Jesus has said. Our our response is to love and to pray. That's what we do. There's this beautiful correlation between love and prayer. The more we love someone, the more likely we are to pray for someone. The more we pray for someone, the more likely we are to love someone. So here's an example. I'm going to I'm going to test this for a moment, but be kind to me. Be gracious for this example. When we see a political outburst like what we've seen related to the Supreme Court nomination, maybe instead of looking at Christine Ford as some sort of political puppet who is being used for power or for gain or or used in some sort of malicious way, we should stop and pray and see her as a child of God. Or maybe before we speak of Brett Kavanaugh, it is some sort of political puppet that's used for some sort of power or some sort of agenda that, that diminishes the role and view of other people. Maybe we should stop and pray and see him as a child of God. So that when people ask us, followers of Jesus, what we think about a particular situation, we say, I don't know, I love them both and I'm praying for them both. Maybe that should be our answer. Man, think if we did that. Then just maybe we would become to be the people that are known for what they're for, not what they're against. Right? So this is the context within which we live. But, but that's honestly the easy work. <laughs> that's, that's the easy part to assess. Let's think for a moment more personally. Let's think for a moment about the enemies in our own lives. Who hurt you? What's that name? What are those wounds? Right? These are the ones that, that maybe we carry around in secret, that, that aren't blasted all over the media. This is where it takes a little bit more insightful reflection of what's going on with our hearts and our souls. Who is it? Maybe for some of you, it's the mother or father that continued to be a source of abuse and neglect throughout your life. Maybe it's the wayward son or daughter that continues to to mistreat you and manipulate you and rebel against you. Maybe it's the spouse or the former spouse that through similar acts of aggression and hostility have left you broken and helpless. Maybe it's that friend, that friend that took trust which is so sacred and broke it through an act of betrayal. Who is it? Who's on that list of people that you'd say, I'm never speaking to them again? Nope, they've hurt me too much. Maybe you don't use the word enemy, but you carry that sentiment. Who is that person? The call again today is similar. Love and pray. Pray for them. Love them. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't just teach this, he demonstrates it. Right? Because on the day of his 
death on the day of his sacrifice, that in the hands of his tormentors, in the agony of punishment, in the agony of abuse, what does he do? He prays, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. John Stott says it incredibly well. If the cruel torture of crucifixion cannot silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? He demonstrates and models this very call. So whoever it is, you and I need to be known for our radical, indiscriminate love for others. That's the what. But why? Why love in such a way? Well, Jesus continues in this teaching very quickly by saying, well, part of the reason is is because you're children of your Father in heaven. You do this because that's who God is. That's his character. You were designed and created to reveal his image. That's why you love in such a way. And, And there's this teaching here that's really interesting, right? It says that God allows the sun to rise on both good and evil. He sends the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. And we have here for a moment a teaching on common grace. And we don't have time to dive into that discussion today, but let me, let me just try to capitalize on it for a little bit here. What we see is that there is still a distinction between good and evil, righteous and unrighteous. And so love does not mean compromising doctrinal integrity or compromising what is right and wrong or just or unjust there is still an allegiance to good and evil but what we see in this teaching is that god exhibits and reveals his grace indiscriminately for all right now now there is still a distinction but everyone has the chance and the opportunity to respond to and hear and feel the love and the grace of god and if that is what he does then we should follow suit that's the first reason why the second reason why is because it sets us apart, right? Jesus continues and he says, listen, you you could just love each other, but what good is that? What reward do you get for that? Tax collectors do that, right? You you could love um, and greet each other just like the pagans do, but but so what? Not everybody does that. Part of what Jesus is reminding us to is to call ourselves to stand out, to be different, to not blend in, to not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but to be transformed by this all-consuming Love, we are called to stand out. One of the things that that really stirred me a couple years ago, I was on staff at First Arlington at the time. We had a guest speaker that was coming and and just visiting with the staff through a couple of days. His name was Michael Lindsay, uh, a writer, a scholar, a really, really brilliant young mind. And he was talking to us about the characteristics of the early church. And he said, you know, the early church did two things really, really well. Number one, they loved each other incredibly well. They loved each other when they were sick, when they were hurt, when they were in need. You know what the second thing they did is? They loved their enemies the same way. (laughs) They loved them when they were sick, when they were hurting, and when they were in need. We are called to be different. We are called to stand out. And so I was reading this article in Christianity Today that referred back to this time uh, in the early church's history. It was in the third century, and it was in the city of Carthage, and there was this incredible plague that broke out. It was a plague that was vicious. The symptoms were blindness, deafness, and paralysis. And it it was so fatal that uh, uh, some of the records indicate that more than 5,000 people died in one day. And so naturally, people were fleeing the area trying to protect themselves and take care of themselves. But the bishop in the area called on his followers and his congregation to stay and care for the sick. 
totally countercultural to what anybody else was asking them to do. So the article describes this response in a very poetic way. It says, they didn't focus primarily on their own safety or convenience, and they didn't just solely care for their own. Rather, they entered into the suffering of their unbelieving neighbors in an effort to convey Christ's love. That's who we should be. Focused on showing and sharing the love of Jesus in all circumstances, living in such a way that people will ask us why we do what we do, and gospel doors will open wide. That's why. Because when we love like this, people will ask questions, and the doors for the gospel fling wide. That's why we do it. To reveal the hope of this kingdom, to be salt in light in this setting and in this context. And so this is what we've been asked to do. This is why we've been asked to do it. But if you're like me, you hear a teaching like this and you're overwhelmed with the impossibility of it and you can't help but ask, how in the world can I live that out? How? And that's where that last verse gives us some clarity. Jesus simply says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now if you're like me, you read a verse like that and you're like, okay, yeah, I'll get right on that, you know? Perfection, easy. What does that mean? What does it mean to be perfect as God our Father is perfect? Well, it's, it's not really this idea of just uh, never having a mistake or never committing a mistake. The perfection here is speaking to completeness. It's, it's speaking to this idea of having an undivided heart. And so what Jesus is teaching here, the way that I interpret that final verse, he's saying the, how you do this is to have an undivided love for the kingdom. Have an undivided heart. Be completely devoted to me. Don't just be devoted to me on Sunday when it's convenient. Don't just be devoted when you're with people that are like-minded. In every situation, in every circumstance, no matter the hostility, exhibit a love that is fully devoted to this kingdom. That's the sort of completeness that I desire for you. That's what you've been called to do. Perfect. Be undivided in your commitment towards this gospel. And part of the reason... You and I can be spurred accordingly for that is because that is what has been demonstrated to us. What Romans 5 tells us is that when you and I were enemies of God, and that's the word it uses, when we were enemies, God reconciled us. He didn't love us with just part of his heart. He just didn't love part of what we are. No, he saw us in all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our uh, uh, loneliness and all of the rebellion that we carried and God sent his son to consume and reconcile all of it completely. That's the hope of the gospel. God looks in on us as enemies, as those of the rebellion and he enters into our suffering and he opens wide the hope of the gospel. And so the way we do this is we, we come before our father and we say, let me give you my whole heart. If we do that, then maybe, just maybe, we begin to live into this identity of being those who know how to love others and can foster this loving community. And so let me, let me conclude with this. Not, not just a word on this particular passage, but a word on this series. Right? What, what does this mean for us? What voice are you listening to? That's the question. Right? Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with that final invitation, he says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who builds their house on the rock. The rains come and the storms may rage, but the house does not fall. If you hear these words, you put them into practice, 
You're like a wise person who has built their life upon the rock. That's the identity that we should have. My hope is that through the course of this series, we've had the opportunity to discover the things that we should let go of and the things that we should hold on to just a little bit more tightly, right? That we would cling to the hope of this gospel and center our lives upon it. That we would hold tightly to the importance of being guided by the scriptures and by prayer and by fasting. That we would cling to the commitment to make disciples, to worship God, to give ourselves to him, to value our families and to love each other, that we would hold on tightly to those things. And let go of the things of the world. And if we do that, you and I can see that we will become those people whose identity is not in the things of this world, but in Christ. That our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That we lean wholly on the name of Jesus. And we are the people that follow and listen to the voice of the King. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning confessing that so many times we are led astray. And we listen to voices around us that that can drown out what it is that you desire of us, that can lead us in a wrong direction. And so we pray, Father, that if there are, are those influences in our life, that we'd be able to identify them and we'd be able to surrender wholly to you. Father, today in light of this teaching that we see in the scripture, we We ask that you would once again help us to pursue civility with those that think differently than us. That you would condition us to know how to respond in an environment that is increasingly hostile. Not seeking to identify with with a tribe or a party, but to be identified with you. To be identified with the king. Father, if there are people in our lives that that have hurt us, that have created wounds, that have created a, a sense of resentment and hostility, help us to to seek forgiveness and be people who know how to love and pray. Father, we think about these words that teach us to to be slow to speak, to be quick to listen, to be slow to become angry. Let, Let us be those people who demonstrate this radical, consuming love of the gospel. And that's really where our hearts respond, God. We think about our identity. We think about who we are. We think about who you've called us to be. Let us be shaped by the beauty of the gospel. Let us be shaped by the assurance of this kingdom. Father, may we not give our lives to anything else but to your son and to Jesus. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that you have seen us in our rebellion and you've stepped into our suffering. So now we ask that you would be that cornerstone of all that we are. We can worship follow you. Praise and glory and honor of Jesus, our Savior, forever and ever. Amen.